You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Have you had questions from patients about COVID vaccine? Have you had patients or even family or friends express hesitancy about if they might get the vaccine when and if they're eligible? Have you recorded a really fun roundtable podcast episode only to have the policy change around immunization before you can get to editing the episode because you were also too busy working on a COVID immunization toolkit for primary care? Yeah, me too. Visit covidtoolkit.ca. This is Primary Care in a Pandemic. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm a medical anthropologist working at the University of British Columbia's Department of Family Practice. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor working in the inner city, and I'm faculty in the Department of Family Practice. We're both part of the Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or the ISU. This episode is a bit different again. This time we have more of a roundtable discussion with two of our recurring primary care colleagues and friends from Season 1, Rita McCracken, an assistant professor in the Department of Family Practice and a family doctor herself, and Alex Singer from Manitoba, a family doctor, associate professor, and director for research and quality. In this roundtable, we talk mostly about vaccine hesitancy and dive a bit into our interpretation of the current science and research. And by current, I mean current at the time of our recording. As I mentioned in the intro, some things changed even just a couple hours after we did our recording. And we've had new policy changes as we shift in BC into phase two of our COVID immunization plan. So without any further hesitation, let's dive in to vaccine hesitancy. I would like to talk about vaccine hesitancy, because that does seem to be a hot topic right now. Just to jump into this, I, I know a lot of people have been talking about vaccine hesitancy when it comes to COVID-19. We've heard some stories about this this happening even amongst healthcare providers. I haven't seen it yet myself in my practice, but I, I'd like to just ask the both of you, is this something that you're seeing right now? I have to say, I haven't seen it a lot in my practice. In my practice, it's been quite the opposite of people saying, when can I be vaccinated? When can I be vaccinated? I will tell some, you know, I have heard it from family and friends more than I've heard it from patients of mine. So I have some family members You know, people have sort of expressed like, oh, you know, are you sure, would, do you, are you sure you're going to get it? Or, you know, which vaccine should I get? Is it true that they weren't all tested properly? And so I, I think the, the hesitancy that I've experienced is more that sort of low grade. I don't know anything about this thing yet. And I'm still a little bit worried that maybe it wasn't done perfectly well or that corners were cut. Um, and, you know, and I've had some conversations with people that says, no, no, actually, it turns out corners weren't cut and the trials were actually reasonably well done. And actually, there's some perfectly good reasons why they were done quicker, because it wasn't actually a challenge to enroll people and funding was pretty generous to sort of get these things off the ground pretty quickly. So um, I think I think the type of hesitancy that I've experienced is the sort of mid-range, you might say sort of the mushy middle of people who are sort of thinking about it and have some you know, fairly reasonable questions as opposed to the sort of hardcore, you know, I'm going to get out and protest. I am not seeing a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, just while Alex was speaking, I was thinking back to September, October, when the exciting news of the trials completing and the vaccines being approved was coming out, which was interestingly before the second wave really got started. I heard a lot more of things, even from some of my peers saying, well, you know, we should see. I'm not too sure how these vaccines are going to go. But 
In the last few weeks, as we've been waiting here in British Columbia for the supply to be available for us to proceed with the vaccinating plan, I have just been overrun with people desperate to get the vaccine. And I have not heard any even murmurings of vaccine hesitancy. Rita, I think that's a good point. The vaccine hesitancy is vaccine distribution hesitancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, We're waiting. And I've had more people asking questions about when. And I wonder if those who are hesitant, they're not voicing it with us because they may be avoiding it or just it's not coming up and we're talking about other things. I know for me, I haven't I haven't brought it up to people who don't bring it up to me, in part because I don't want to open up a question that I don't have an answer to, which is when am I going to get it? And I, oh, well, I don't know. Well, thanks for bringing it up to tell me you don't know. But I wonder if that's something that we should start thinking about in our patients that aren't asking about it already just to see if it's if it's a concern. So I have an interesting patient story, actually. I have a, I have a patient with a rare genetic condition, and I was on the call with him. He also in, incidentally has a sort of obstructive slash restrictive lung disease that may or may not be part of his rare genetic condition. And he brought up the vaccine. He said, so am I going to be, the way he phrased it was, am I going to be eligible for the vaccine because I have this rare condition? Um, and he incidentally also carries around an oxygen t- container because it's lung function. And I said, well, of course you'll be eligible. And, you know, and in fact, you know, and, oh, sorry, the other thing is he has a food allergy. And so I said, of course you'll be eligible and your food allergy doesn't have any implication on your risk of anaphylaxis. And I started going into this whole, you know, I almost launched into the like, oh, you definitely can't be hesitant. You need to, you're one of the people that even though you're young-ish, you know, 40s, 50s, you need to be vaccinated. And he he actually almost sort of cut me off and was like, oh, no, no, I wasn't asking if I could or should. He's like, I just wanted to know that you thought it was the right thing for me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yes, right thing for you. Absolutely, you should be prioritized. And then he actually said, which I thought was super fascinating, for a person who's relatively unwell, but lives a pretty functional life, you know, in spite of carting around an oxygen container, um, he said, oh, I, I don't want to skip skip the line. I'm, I'm you know, I'm fine. I'm, I don't leave the house. I don't need to leave the house. My job is on a computer. Like, I'm perfectly happy not being prioritized. And I thought, isn't this interesting? Like someone who I would like to go out of my way to make sure when the criteria arrive, he's at the front of the line. He's actually like perfectly happy. Like, no, no, I, I just want to know that I'm going to get vaccinated at some point. He was less anxious about all of this than I was, which I always think is interesting. You know, when you're working harder than your patient, you're probably not going to do well. So it was just, it was one of those stories where I almost perceived hesitancy just by the way he phrased his question. But in fact, he was more just asking, is this the right thing for me? I've heard a few things in the media that, you know, food allergy or whatever might be a problem. And as long as I know that you think it's okay, good. That's all I need to know. That was all he needed to know basically was Dr. Singer says it's all right. Yeah, that just prompted me to recall that I did have the opportunity to do some vaccinating in long-term care for both a first and a second dose. And there were probably, I would say, out of 225 people that we were vaccinating, about five or six who just refused to get the vaccine. They just didn't want it. And whether or not the didn't wanting it came from a really thorough uh, consideration of 
all of the information, or they have a disease process that is has taken away most of their decision-making ability, and they used their gestures and their words to say, I don't want you to give me that needle. Either way, I want to honor those people's choices. So certainly, I do want to provide people the information and uh, the opportunity to be vaccinated wherever possible. But 100% vaccination is not a reasonable goal. And it is not something that I think is required. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think we don't, especially with these current vaccines and how good they appear to be, you know, our targets for population level immunity are, are lower, which is good. I, I still, I struggle with, and I, I'm curious what both of your thoughts are on this, it, that, that idea that these numbers we've seen are you know, 95% is fantastic, but it's 95% for severe illness, not uh, prevention of illness. Well, it's it's also the way that the trials were designed, right? They were designed for passive surveillance that people just said, oh, you know, this group got the placebo and this group got the intervention. And some people in either groups showed up and said, got a COVID swab. And some of them were done with active surveillance, right? So the, the sort of differences in how the trials were actually powered. But if you look at some of the real world evidence that's coming out, they seem to, the vaccines seem to be very efficacious in terms of keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them from dying, which in some ways is actually the more important outcome. I mean, from my perspective, I would be fine if I got COVID and had some mild symptoms and it was fine. I certainly don't want to spread it to other people. And I certainly don't want to end up in the hospital or die. And when I think about my practice overall, or the patients in my community, or, you know, the people in my province or country, you know, that's kind of the same hope I have for them, for the sort of population at large. It's like, if we vaccinate 70, 80% of people, and there's still some low level transmission, but we're not, but people aren't getting admitted to the hospital and people aren't dying of COVID, that that's good enough. Right? We don't have to completely eradicate. It's not polio. This is a pandemic of a respiratory illness that, you know, the problem with COVID is that it overwhelms the health system and a, a relatively small number of people are experiencing significant morbidity and mortality. So what we want is to end that, that significant morbidity and mortality. If we can do that with the vaccination, then we can reduce all of these pandemic restrictions. Um, and so... I think the vaccines thus far and the real world data that's been released or that we, that's that's been evaluated does show that they do a pretty good job of that, decreasing hospitalizations, ICU admissions, Absolutely. those kind of things. Absolutely, yeah. So the the other thing just to, I wanted to reflect, um, Rita was talking about, you know, do we need 100%? And uh, one of my favorite truisms in medicine is, you know, you can never get, uh, you can never say never or always. Um, and I say that to the residents all the time. You can ne never say never or always. And that's exactly the same thing with vaccination. I mean, we can hope to get 100% of the, the population vaccinated, but that's a totally unrealistic and improbable, impossible situation. We need to aim for as many people as possible to end the pandemic, but accepting that, you know, some people for various reasons will not be able, won't, will refuse or won't be able to consent or, you know, any number of sort of things where totally appropriately people won't be able to get vaccinated or won't be vaccinated, as unfortunate as that is. I agree with you that I think the value from a morbidity and mortality perspective of acute COVID, absolutely, it's it's showing its it's showing its uh, value for many people. That's a very clear um, selling point. We we know it works really well. In fact, we know even with the first dose, you're getting a pretty good response after a few weeks. I think that's that's one of those questions I've had a couple of times. Again, I get the same thing, Alex. People socially have connected and asked questions versus clinically. Is five weeks okay? 
and then to explain actually you know how the immune system works it's probably could be even slightly better uh, we don't have the studies necessarily that were designed that way but in general with other vaccines five weeks six weeks probably actually better for your immune system it goes back to how they structured the trials which was to try to get to try to demonstrate efficacy in a relatively short period of time so they were powered in that way because that was the path to getting approval and then now we're looking at the real world data so it was sort of that this was by design it's it's the it's you know the same reason why Pfizer didn't take the time to do all of the testing to see that it would be see that the vaccine would be stable at lower temperatures is because those things take a lot of time and they prioritized speed so we're going to invent a whole, you know, cold chain supply chain thing as opposed to, you know, put the vaccines in a freezer at different temperatures or a fridge for 6 months and then wait and see if they they didn't if they didn't go bad because that that study to do that takes 6 months cuz you got to wait 6 months with the vaccine in the freezer to find out. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. That's a good way of describing it. I think the cold chain for people who are aware of it is a really good example of where the timeline was shortened. Mhm. Mm to keep the science intact. Right. Because uh, I think a lot of people go, gosh, you know, it should take 20 years for us to figure this out, but we did it in less than one. It can't be good science. And it actually is. It's, it, it was amazing science. And it was highly collaborative, right? Because mm -hmm. there were all these people driving towards the same goal and both competing and collaborating at the same time. I think it was, I mean, it's a beautiful example of really good science where there was a whole bunch of hypotheses that got raised. Maybe we'll use this technique. Maybe we'll use that. And then people tested all of those hypotheses in various different ways across the world, but had shared also, you know, things like the the fact that the virus was sequenced by November, December, 2019, there was a genetic sequence of the virus. So people had already started working on, oh, you know, is this the spike protein? Is that the spike protein? That was an incredible amount of sharing that the sequencing was done when I, you know, when I was an undergrad, it was like, that was the time of the, of the human genome project. And it was a huge undertaking to sequence, I, I, right? I spent a year on the human genome project and I sequenced about 110,000 base pairs. So just the, just the fact that like within a few weeks, the whole yeah. thing had been sequenced is an amazing testament to how far the science has gotten and how collaborative that effort was. Okay. It sequenced and instantly shared. Now everyone has the sequence and can begin testing different hypotheses about how we might develop a vaccine for this emerging pathogen. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it really is a testament to many of the advancements that we've seen um, and how they were able to lead to this dramatic, very rapid development that in the past, yeah, it took five or 10 years to do that because that's where the technology was at. And that's how long it took to do those same experiments. And we did those same experiments this time in months. Educating about some of those speed ramps, if you will, I won't call them shortcuts, but the hmm. ability to speed up here and there. Mm -hmm. I think that's important for some people because there's a lot of that knowledge gap. There's yes. a few that are, are I, I loved your example, Alex, like, well, do you think this is right for me? given X, Y, and Z that's not being published in the, the newspaper. And uh, you go, yeah, absolutely. You know, given your, your respiratory condition, I think it's even more important. Right. You know, I, I had somebody else do the same thing with me and I said, well, you know, yeah, I, I don't think this is going to be a problem. And the inflammatory response that you might get from COVID is much more serious for you. Those individual specific questions. But what other reasons for hesitancy, what other reasons have the two of you concerned? Well, I think the 
the biggest thing that has me concerned is that we have not, we don't have a method to be asking that question in the places where it needs to get asked. And what I mean by that is, so, you know, for example, the three of us, we have been eating, drinking, sleeping, vaccination, vaccination hesitancy, all of that stuff for weeks. And our social circles are contaminated by that. And we don't have access to the community groups and the populations who are not already seeking us for our advice. And those are the ones that I think we need to be really thinking about. And so I think, you know, I'm excited to hear that there are some projects ongoing where we're thinking about what kind of structure do we need to be able to beforehand get out to those groups and start having those conversations. So similar to Rita, what I worry about is the folks who may or may not be part of my own practice, you know, thinking of my own sort of limited uh, commitment to a group of people, but who are potentially out in the community in maybe in different echo chambers, right? So Reed is absolutely right, right? The echo chamber that I live in is a very pro-science, pro-vaccine. We're trying to figure out ways to spread and scale so we can vaccinate more people. But I think, you know, the social media landscape and the way that people digest news these days, um, which has become increasingly evident you know, by certainly by some of the things that have been in the news recently in our neighbor to the south is this idea that there are people that live in an echo chamber of news and information, which perpetuates certain ideas, certain concepts, which may strike me or a different someone else living in a different echo chamber as being wildly untrue and obviously disprovably untrue, but is true to them. And so how do you how do you cross that bridge when it gets to something where someone else may have a completely different reality, so to speak. You know, all of the media, all of the information they're consuming tells them about a different reality. One way of looking at this is to think about sort of health literacy or health numeracy or understanding risk. And what's what's riskier, getting COVID or getting the vaccine? Well, I mean, to me, given my health literacy, it's there's not even a choice, right? In that in in those two contexts, the risk of of any kind of adverse event serious or otherwise, is so much less than the risk of actually getting COVID and having a serious adverse event. Even if it's 1% of me ending up in a hospital, I'm a relatively young, healthy person, that's way more. That's multitudes of exponentially more risky than the risk of of, of me being harmed in, in any way by the vaccine. And of a minor harm. So yeah, my arm, my arm hurt when I got vaccinated and that was uncomfortable and it was gone in 24 hours. To weigh the balance between that and getting COVID is just not even not even the same stratosphere. I, I, don't, I think there's lots of people that will make that decision with a different degree of health literacy, um, and that's that's a concern. How do you how do you explain that, or how do you penetrate those echo chambers to have accurate, provable information, good evidence? I think there will be frightening percentages of people who believe all sorts of weird and wonderful things about the COVID vaccine, um, and how do we address that? And how do we discuss that? And how do we get into those echo chambers? I think is a really, that to me worries me. I'm going to go back to the mushy middle. We all have this where we've made a decision or we've gotten a first bit of information. It impacts subsequent decisions. So by saying I'm concerned about the vaccine or I don't think I'm going to get it myself back in September, you're probably more likely today to say, I'm not going to get it today. 
and I think that that's an important thing for us to to acknowledge. And the flip side of it is by having the conversations from a trusted source, and that's, I'm going to make the bold assumption that as family docs, we've you know, got some level of trust with our patients. And doing that repeatedly, we can help shift that conversation because then you're starting to repeat a different level of conversation. But not trying not to do it in a defensive way or trying to do it in a way that the patient gets defensive, I think is really the trick. Again, just like that example of the individual context and saying, well, this is what I, I think is better, tipping it to the individual context of the person to help them make a decision is really, I think, an important piece of what we can offer. Mm -hmm. It's a sense the sort of whole concept of shared decision making, where as the as the clinician, you help make a decision, you help a patient come to a decision based on their values and the clinical circumstances, and you know, that idea that it's a shared decision. It's not it's not a paternalistic. I'm telling you to do this, and nor is it a nor is it a an equal distribution of 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 knowledge, right? as the clinician, you come to it with a bit more information potentially. Um, and that that's worth sort of recognizing for the group of people that come and want to talk about that and are interested in listening. So that's that sort of mushy middle. I, I mean, the worry is that that other group of people who have made up a decision with limited health or science literacy or a degree of misunderstanding or mistrust that has led them to a completely opposing view that group is extremely hard to access. And I think as family physicians, for the people we have a relationship with that are asking questions, that's that's our sweet spot. I mean, we can we we make we help people come to decisions about their health, about all sorts of different things. And I think that's one of the things that family physicians specialize in, so to speak, is having a relationship with patients and and communicating with them and helping people come to good decisions about their health. That's you know, it's one of the things that's very germane to our specialty. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, uh, along that journey, we're helping them. And we also know that it's rarely uh, a single conversation uh, about anything, really, in, in primary care. And so that relationship, you know, it might, it might take a few visits, it might take a few months. And ultimately, we create those relationships in a way that can support the person in the future. And so even if they do end up saying no, you know, how do you how do you do that in a way that you continue to provide care that's going to help them stay as healthy as possible, even if they decide not to take your advice. But that idea of we need to engage with people where they're at and have a conversation that takes their life and their perspective into consideration rather than uh, this more of a binary you're vaccinated or not. Rita, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> vaccine is, there is you're vaccinated or you're not. I guess the only one in the middle is I took one dose and decided not to get the second. But there's the other part of that is if I choose not to get the vaccine and you're not going to uh, you know, end the relationship with a patient because they choose not to, obviously, it is a dialogue going forward. But there's also the other parts like, okay, I appreciate that's where you're at right now and perhaps you need more time, but don't forget the other aspects of public health measures. And in fact, even I think really important for people who are vaccinated to not forget those other measures right now. Well, um, that's gonna, you know, that's going to be an increasing challenge. Is you know when I know. 50, 60 percent of the population is vaccinated, which means they have a one in twenty chance of getting COVID. It's still not zero. If we don't want to have a pandemic, we're still going to probably need to take some precautions, and hopefully those precautions will lessen over time as more of us get vaccinated. 
Here's my tangible takeaway for that. Ask your patients, how bad was the flu this year for them? How bad was their bronchitis this year for them? So many people have not had an issue because they've been doing the other stuff for COVID and the cross benefit is like, oh yeah, I didn't get a gastritis. I didn't get a flu. I didn't get any bronchitis. It's one of those experiences that people won't have connected the dots, but I suspect and I hope that some of the public health measures in North America will become a little more commonplace next year and the year after in terms of hand washing, mask wearing, staying home when you're sick, you know, like it has been in Asia. Hopefully that will be one of the lingering benefits that we have is it's okay to wear a mask if you've got a cold. Well, I mean, we talk about in, in the sort of asthma management world, you know, the September, October epidemic, when all the kids go back to school and start spreading viruses and sharing things. Um, and I was not sick this year through September to December. And I have three kids, school age, young cesspools of, usually cesspools of viruses, both, you know, respiratory and gastrointestinal. And yeah, I haven't had, I haven't been sick at all. My, I have to overtreat my allergies because it's no longer acceptable to cough or sneeze in public, but I haven't had a cold yeah, <laughs> for exactly. over a year at this stage. It's craziness. I think, but I think that's a good comment to bring or a reflection to bring back to patients who might, who might not, you know, maybe don't want the, the vaccine now, but there's other things you can do and look at the benefit you've had from that already. And I think also the idea, and Rita sort of brought this up and I think you kind of brought it forward too, Morgan, is this is part of a behavior change model, like any kind of behavior change. If someone isn't exactly sure, they're still pre-contemplative and maybe as more evidence comes out and as more experience gets out there, maybe that maybe they'll move to contemplative and maybe we just need to keep the door open. I think that's a really good point that family medicine, primary care providers have a lot of experience with supporting and coaching patients who are making choices that aren't consistent with the evidence. And I mean, really, you know, if we if we get honest about it, there's a lot I do in my life that's not consistent with the evidence, right? There's robust evidence to suggest that the amount of potato chips I eat is inappropriate. <laughs> and, um, you know, not, not to make light or anything, but, you know, I remember the first time that I had a patient who quit smoking. And this was somebody who, you know, I had seen two or three times a year for three years. And each time, you know, we kind of had a, a little bit of a back and forth. I tried to stay kind of good natured about it, about, you know, hey, can I can I remind you in three months that I think smoking tobacco is a bad idea? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes he would say yes, and sometimes he would say no. And then one day he came in and told me he had quit. And I couldn't believe that it had actually worked, that just that constant positive presence and being a space where he knew that I was advocating for his health. It was kind of magical. It took a long time, but it worked. I think back to that, you know, when I think about what am I actually doing in primary care when there's very few things I can do that are a magic wand. I think in some ways the vaccine is a bit of a magic wand, but patients might not have that same perception. And so we just need to rely on those skills that we've used for many other conditions. What I took away from this episode was that now's a good time to start being more proactive with people to have those positive conversations about getting immunized and to do this even when patients aren't bringing it up. Also, if you're interested, check out our COVID toolkit at covidtoolkit.ca. It's our evolving primary care toolkit to help our offices get ready to run our own COVID immunization clinics when we do get vaccine supply that starts coming to primary care. I hope that you enjoyed the new format. Let us know, give us some feedback, and we're happy to adapt based on what people like. Thanks for listening. 
has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 